0: He's a funny guy. and He's also a very, very intellectual guy. He's very, very smart. He, he not only he's um, he has served um, all over the world. He he, he was um, mainly mainly attached to the the Calvary Chapel Bible Institute. That's true, um, but he was serving in um, uh, in Germany, in Austria, in the UK, uh, now in New Zealand. He's been around. He's got he's got. Um, He's got a lot to say and a lot to contribute, and he, and he loves this. He loves being around men sharing uh, as we've been saying, man-stuff. So, come along. It'll be great. Um, how are you? Well. You're well? Are you better than well? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Well's good. Well's good. But we are amazing, aren't we? Because we're not, not we ourselves, <laughs> but the one who lives within us is incredible, right? Christ our Lord, the Lord of glory, who reigns within our hearts. He's the one that makes life amazing. And and it's been wonderful listening to Marty, and it's been wonderful hearing the words of these songs and the encouragement that comes from it, to know indeed that, yes, Christ is upon the throne. He is really in charge, and he is doing amazing things, right? Amen? Yeah. Um, Let's pray. I want to encourage you to... Some of you know Bev Gideon. She's a lady who was a member of this uh, fellowship. She hasn't been with us for a while, but she came back into my life about three, four months ago. Um, Could have been a bit longer even, six months. No, longer, yeah, five months ago uh, when she was diagnosed with terminal cancer and she was told six months ago... That that she had three months to live, and and here we are six months ago. I mean, she's an incredible lady. She really is. Some of you that know Bev um, might understand that. You know, who gets who gets who gets diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, and on the phone in their kitchen gets the news in their kitchen, and starts to rejoice and sing, "This is the day that the Lord has made," and jump up and down with joy in her heart. Um, She's a special lady. Um, she, so, she had a stroke a couple of days ago. so um, she needs your prayers and she knows that her God is with her and uh, let's bow our hearts, shall we? Father in heaven, we just praise you and thank you for who you are and the, and the goodness Lord God, that we know that extends from the throne of grace. We just are so thankful as your sons and daughters and, and Lord, when we see our loved ones and a precious daughter of yours, Uh, in the place she's in right now. We ask for Bev, Lord. Uh, We ask, Lord God, that you would... Lord, our our heart desires, we hunger, we thirst to know that you would move in her life and uh, do wonderful things um, even in the midst of this darkness and this heaviness. And we ask, Lord God, that you would touch her with your healing hand. Lord, that you would strengthen her for the day. But whatever it is that you would do, Lord God, we thank you that you are sufficient for this woman right now. Bless her heart. Encourage her. May she continue to rejoice in your goodness and your faithfulness to her. Be with her daughters. I pray, Father, for her children, Lord, that the testimony of your grace and the the, the wonder of your strength in the heart of their mother, Lord God, would speak volumes about your great love, even for them. So, Father, we thank you for this lady and thank you for your hand within her life. Bless her, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So you're well, you tell me. That's great. Um, Turn to Romans. We're in Romans. If you're a visitor this morning, welcome visitors. Have you been welcomed this morning, visitors? I know there's a couple of you there. I hope you have. If you haven't, welcome this morning. Um, I hope you're blessed and encouraged as we continue the word of God and um, our custom is, if you want to call it that, is to conclude every fortnight the service around the communion table and so the exhortation as always is this, is allow the word of God to minister to your heart to prepare you to gather before the throne, the table of grace and the table of God's great love. Uh, pray he speaks to you. so we're in Romans. We're making our way through the book of Romans. Uh, we're up to chapter 6. If you would go there. Now, as you go there, I want to tell you about a fellow by the name of Rasputin. Do you know him? Heard about Rasputin? Lovely fellow. Um, he was a, oh, at the end of the 19th century, he was a. Um, he was a mystic. He was a self-proclaimed holy man, who I'm not sure how, but weaselled his way into the royal family, the final uh, royal family, uh, Nicholas II of the Russian, uh, the Russian Tsar, just prior to communism coming in. He was there at the very, towards the very end there, and he, and he, um, very strange individual. Um, who began to influence the royal family um, with his many strange ways, um, but, but in the end he upset them, and in the end there was a plot against his life. I, I don't encourage you to read his life, but if you're interested, do so. Um, in the end of it, he uh, there, there was pl- there was pl- was plotted against him, and he was assassinated, and uh, and uh, he didn't go down easy. They they had. Um, Decided to invite him to. He was given to gluttony wine drinking. It was a part of, he was one of those mystic monks that thought that was okay. And um, so they thought they would lure him into a cellar one night and offer him um, beautiful cakes and pastries and and wine, but it just happened to be laced with arsenic. Um, So he got down there and uh, he began to gorge himself on these. Cakes down in the cellar, and to the surprise of the conspirators against his life, he didn't die, um, and he and he kept on eating these. The story goes, and he just did not die. They say he consumed enough enough arsenic to kill a whole horde of people, um, but in the end, he did get an upset stomach. You know, and um, and so the conspirators left and. They didn't know what to do with this fella, finally it was decided they would just shoot him. Um, As you do when a person doesn't die of arsenic. So they went and they came down with a gun and they shot him and they says they shot him in the heart and he fell on the ground, dead. They disappear the guy who pulled the trigger became very very concerned about uh, the effectiveness of um, the bullet so he came back down and looked at him there he was dead on the ground just as they had left him but then all of a sudden he apparently he began to his hands began to move his eyes began to flutter his eyes opened and the guy freaked out Rasputin, he runs off to go and get the gun that he left upstairs. He comes back, Rasputin is dragging himself up the stairs, so the story goes, gets on his feet. He stumbles out into the courtyard, where they chase him down and put a bullet in the back of his head, and there they kill him. Take the body, throw it in the frozen river. There ends the story of Rasputin, the mad monk. Why do I tell you this story? All of that is immaterial. I just wanted to tell you you how smart I was. No, all of that is immaterial. He taught, this is what I want you to know about him. He taught that salvation came through the repeated experience of sinning and then repenting. His belief was the more a person is forgiven, then greater the joy that they can experience. His conclusion was this. His conclusion is that the believer's duty is to go out there and sin so that they can then go to the throne of grace, ask for forgiveness, and experience the overabounding joy that comes from God's overabounding grace. And he lived that to excess. Um, No response. I don't look for responses. But this mad monk, as he became known, um, taught that some 200 years ago. And collectively, what is our response? That's ridiculous, isn't it? That's ridiculous, right? But here's the thing. In the minds of some believers, there are similar philosophies. There really are, certainly not as blatant as Rasputin may have been, but in one way or another, there are believers, professing believers, that say that they can justifiably continue in a sinful lifestyle. Now, I'm not gonna try and explain that rationale in a person's mind, but there are people that I meet there are people that I know, in fact, people who speak of Christ and His forgiveness, and yet they believe that they can can continue living in. Let me say it again: a justifiable sinfulness in their lives. They believe that they can go out and get blind drunk. They believe that lying and cheating is, while not most honourable, is an acceptable practice. You know, years back, let me give you an example. Years back, and this to this day, this grieves my heart. We had a fellow who came into this church. And um, at the same time, we also had a young girl who came into this church. He came from another religious experience. This young girl got saved, we, you know, was gloriously saved, wonderfully baptised, but then struck up a relationship with this fellow, who then began to tell her that it was okay for them to have sex, to sleep together. Why? Because Christ had died for their sins. That's a horrible story, isn't it? You know, this was all happening in the background. We weren't aware of this going on. The thing is, this um, when it became aware, when we became aware, he very quickly disappeared. She moved on. She is now married to a Christian man. She is now living a, you know, a, a, a lovely Christian life. The, 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 the tragic thing of it that grieves me you know, is um, part of her testimony, and I've heard it, part of her testimony is, was that when she got saved, she got injured in this church because of this person's deceitful understanding of Christianity. Um, these are people who don't believe that they have to make any change in their lives you know the reasoning don't you i've said it already the reason is because of jesus has died for our sin all of our sin and that is true isn't it that's very true jesus has died for all of mankind's sin past present and future but what The scripture here does in this sixth chapter of Romans. And such such people uh, refuse to be confronted by it. I mean, to this day, that individual does not believe that their practice was wrong. In fact, refuses to be confronted by it. The fact that this glorious salvation does not give a believer a license to sin. Paul's been moving towards this. As we make our way through the book of Romans, in the previous chapter, he laid down for us the reality that just as one man's sin, that is Adam's sin, it brought universal ruin, it brought spiritual separation from God to all of mankind. It says that through one man, death came to all. But how wonderful that fifth chapter explores and opens up that through the one perfectly righteous Son of God and his triumph over death, then the, the, and the eternal weight of, of separation from God is replaced with the eternal reign of spiritual life to be experienced by all of those who trust in him. Now, isn't that glorious? Isn't that glorious? This is the wonderful grace of God in all the depth and completeness of God's salvation that he has made available for mankind. That's why it says where grace abounds. You know the verse back in chapter 5, where grace abounds, what? Sorry, where sin abounds. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Or literally, grace is unending. Grace knows no bounds. Grace will always be found more abundant than sin. You know what that tells me? That tells me that there is no one, no one that is so sinful that they are beyond the grace of God's forgiveness. But what it is not saying... What it is not saying is that we have a justifiable approval from God to go on sinning. It is not saying if sin brings grace, like the mad monk said, if sin brings grace, then let's sin all the more, we do, do, right? People live like that. You know. You know the scripture. And I love this book because it anticipates all of our objection. You know, I love it. It anticipates such abuse of the overabounding grace of God simply by opening up and asking us a question. So, let's be asked the question. Are you there in chapter 1? Chapter 6 and verse 1? Here's the question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we go on sinning? Should we go on living just as if, just as we were before we met Christ? And the answer is swift and the answer is immediate, isn't it? It's absolute, in fact. Certainly not. Your Bible may say, God forbid. That's stronger, isn't it? Sounds stronger, right? To live an unchanged, sinful life is inconceivable to the Apostle Paul. I so wanted to call this message inconceivable, but I couldn't. Because it brought connotation of a movie. <laughs> and I would, that would just trap my mind if I started talking about Princess Bride this morning. Oh. Oh. Simply inconceivable. Can't do the voice, you know. <sighs> I want to <her> now. <laughs> it's inconceivable Why? Because the very principle of our salvation is death of the old life, right? What does 2 Corinthians chapter tell us, verse 5 and verse 7? We say it every time we go take someone through the waters of baptism. We say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You see, we are being reminded that we were all born with a fallen nature. That's what we've been reminded, a nature that controls us with our bodily appetites and our self-serving desires. Let me remind you some things this morning. You know this. You didn't have to go to school to learn how to be jealous, did you? You didn't go to school to learn how to be envious or have to go to school to learn how to be greedy or impatient. Have you ever had to stop and plan ahead so that you could blow your top and just rip somebody's head off? You never had to do that, have you? You didn't have to try to be proud. You didn't have to try to be lustful. I don't think any of you have ever promised that you would never do good again and then to find yourself accidentally falling into it and breaking that promise. No, none of you. No, those things happen naturally, not to be good, of course, but those things happen naturally according to our fallen nature. But when we were born again, literally born from above, when we were born again, you were born of the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ, we're told, made you alive and then began to dominate your life, putting those fleshly desires in subjection to your now alive spirit. Your bodily appetites, there's nothing wrong with them, nothing wrong with them, God wants them in subjection to the Spirit. He wants you alive spiritually. You see, you and I, as Christians, you and I as God's creation were never ever intended to be controlled by our bodily appetites. But oh, how our society wants us controlled like that, right? I mean, just look at all these reality TV shows. Every single one of them is placating to your bodily appetites. And it's having people sitting in front of their TVs just wishing and dreaming that they could be the ones that are chosen to be there pursuing that fulfillment in their lives. No, that was never God's intention. But now that you are born again, now that you're a child of God, now spiritually alive, what do you desire? Yeah, You desire the things of God. Now that you are spiritually alive, you are aware of the presence of God in your life. Why? Because God's spirit, we're going to see this in Romans chapter 8. God's spirit is now bearing witness to your spirit that you are a child of God. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? He's talking to you all the time. No matter where you are, no matter what you're going through. Steve said it this morning. Marty said it this morning. You know, he talked about even in the darkest of times, God is always there speaking to you, isn't he? He's always there reminding you. He's always there leading you. He's always guiding you. He's always there telling you that he is a great heavenly father who will never abandon you, who will never leave you, who will never, ever, ever abandon you. So Paul says it's just inconceivable, right? It's just inconceivable for a person, what did we read? That is dead to sin, to live any longer in that sin it's inconceivable he's going to talk about this now because of the nature of the union that we have with christ you know we have to understand this it's got to be so much more head knowledge you know we say it all the time and it's been said by many many people the greatest journey what is it 14 inches When that which is in your head becomes truth within your heart. The greatest journey that any person will make, you know. It's got to be true to us. We've got to truly understand the depth of this union that we have with Christ, you know. It's what Paul does to do that is he goes back to the metaphor of baptism. So will you read it with me? It says in verse 3, he says, Or do you not know? I love the old King James, know ye not? But do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So this metaphor of baptism. Now we know, I think most of us have been baptised. But we know that and understand that when we are baptised, there is this beautiful symbolism. Again, I, I know I laboured on it last week, those testimonies that we heard from, at the night of the dinner, people talking about their baptisms and just how overwhelmed they were. You know, Not that the baptism saves anybody, but it is this beautiful analogy, allegory, um, symbolism, whatever you want to t- call it, that is describing the reality of what Christ has already done within their hearts, right? And so this incredible symbolism of what God has done through Jesus Christ, we go down into the waters of baptism and that we are reminded that we were actually buried with Jesus Christ. That old life. This is why people say it, I was, it was so overwhelming. I think uh, Mark said, it was like, was it you, Mark, that said, it was burden lifted, if it wasn't you, it was somebody. The burden was lifted. It's that old life that dominated us by our, fall, our fallen flesh. It was the understanding that that is now dead and buried with Jesus Christ. And we came then up out of the waters of baptism with the, the reminder that yes, we are new creations in Christ. And we are now ruled by the spirit of Christ. That has made us alive. And verse 5 there says, We are united. We are united in his death and resurrection. Have you ever, do you stop and think about that? If not, it's a great, we should be. You know, Christian, you have a profound union with Jesus Christ. And these are not just words. Your spiritual history didn't start when you said, yes, Lord Jesus, come into heart, my heart, forgive me of my sins. No. It didn't start then. Your spiritual history began 2,000 years ago. For 2,000 years ago, in God's sight, your old nature of sin was being put to death with Jesus Christ. And three days later, when he rose from the dead, you rose with him. This is what God was seeing. That's what he was seeing. You know, in Galatians, we have that wonderful declaration that is cried out, I have been crucified with christ it's no longer i that live but christ lives in me right we read of the same union in the book of colossians and i love it let me read to you what the apostle paul said in colossians chapter three he says in verse one if then you were raised with christ seek those things which are above where christ is sitting at the right hand of god set your mind on the things above not on things of the earth for what for you died and your life is this union you died and your life is hidden with christ in god the facts are these christian if you are born again and you are because you are christian If you are born again, you are so profoundly united with Jesus Christ that just as he did not serve sin, the question is asked, how then can we? Now, Paul says in the next verse, knowing this, verse 6, Paul says, that our old nature was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. When it says there that the body of sin should be done away with, that word done away with is the word katagiro, which means rendered inoperative. That old nature, that body of sin has been rendered inoperative. It has also been interpreted, put out of business. Some people say it's a bit like this, that God has prepared a sign to hang over that dead corpse. It has been put out of business. Other people describe it like Christ has opened up the prison door of sin in your life. The door is open and you can just now freely walk out. You can look at it however you want to look at it, but what it is saying is God has made a way that your body has sinned, has, let me say it again, been put out of business so that you don't have to be slaves to it anymore and that should stir your hearts because your body of sin did you no favors it only took from you it only hurt you and the ones that you loved you owe it nothing and you should gleefully and joyfully hang that sign around your head it is category it is put out of business it is dead and it is buried with christ and that's where it remains That's the victory. That's what it is to be Christian. God has made a way for your body of sin to be put out of business. Notice what it says in verse 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead... He dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Look. Just stop there. And let the depth of that resonate in your hearts this morning. I'll read it again. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead. He dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life that he lives, he now lives to live. to God. Sin and death have no dominion over Christ. We are united so profoundly in union with Christ. Therefore... This is why you should let this resonate in your hearts. Therefore, sin and death have no dominion over you, over us. We've been set free that we might live as Christ to God. Have you read these things before? As Christ lived to God, so might you and I. I read that and it is a most incredible statement. You know, because we are always struggling. We are always saying we're never going to be able to get there. We can't do it. That guy might be spiritual. That girl might be spiritual. But I'll never be. You know? And we're looking at people. And we're comparing ourselves to people. And we're allowing our failings and the weakness of our flesh to rise up and to defeat us. But God has made provision for every single one of us where we can live as Jesus Christ lived. Think about that. It says, likewise, verse 11, you also, you also, but there's a word then, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to, indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Do we use that word reckon. I reckon that's not what it is that's not what it is, no reckon is a word of faith you know a lot of people have different ways to describe it we can get very technical but you know simply what it means when you reckon something you are saying yes it is so yes it is true absolutely you see God doesn't command us please hear this God doesn't command you and I to become dead to sin no he doesn't he just says it is so it has been so for 2,000 years now. When Jesus took your sin to the cross and they were crucified, put to death with him, you rose a new creation in Christ, they stayed dead. That's what, that's what our salvation is. No, no, God doesn't command us to become dead to sin. He says it is already so. We, we say we are dead to sin. That's what you've got to say. You are dead to sin. He doesn't command you to make it so. He commands us to act upon the fact that it is so. Did you hear that? He didn't command you to make it so. He commands you to act upon the reality, upon the fact that it is so. Look, you and I both know that that old nature is not going to go quietly into the night, right? We know that. You know, the next chapter, chapter 7, in fact, is going to talk about that. Chapter seven is going to talk about the fact that that old nature is just going to refuse to stay in the grave, you know. But our bodily appetite—that is, our our bodily appetites, our our self-serving desires that once sat on the throne of our hearts and once directed our lives, once established the appetites within us—they're going to try and rule over us all of the time. But we don't have to give in to them anymore. This is what this chapter is saying. We don't have to give in to them anymore. And can I tell you a secret? That's the difference between you, Christian, and an unsaved person. You don't have to give in to them anymore. The unsaved person doesn't have that choice. They, they don't have that choice. You and I do. So, Christian, this is a simple message this morning. When you and I, when we find ourselves facing that old nature, when it's rising up all stench with all of its stench tempting you back into the sin of an old lifestyle all you have to do is agree with God that's all you've got to do that thing is dead it has no life it was indeed crucified <clears throat> 2000 years ago Forgive me for repeating myself, but this is what you and I need to be doing every day of our lives. Reminding that old nature that it's dead. It was crucified with Christ. It's been dead for a very, very, very long time. And yes, it stinks terribly. You know? You reckon it to be so. Settle in your hearts once and for all. See, I I want you to know this morning that no matter what the sin may be, just know that you can disregard it as being something that is completely contrary to who you are now, to who you really are. It has no power and it has no place within your lives. That's the wonderful thing, right? But I can't leave you there. I have to say this. We have the choice, again, to reckon it to be so, again, because it is so. Or we can choose to give life to something that is dead, that should stay dead. See, we as Christians, we can keep running back to 1 John 1.9, can't we? Can't we? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's God's provision for our forgiveness. That's wonderful. It's a faithful saying. It's absolutely true. He will always forgive us if we come back to him with repentant hearts. But all I want to say to you this morning is God has made, yes, that provision for the battle that we are in. That is true. But how much better, Christian, rather than you to have to every single day... Be running back for forgiveness. How much better is it for you, Christian, to daily reflect upon the cross of Jesus Christ? To Find yourself at the feet of the cross, knowing that your old man was put to death there and reckoning that to be so in your daily life. Keep counting yourself dead to sin and alive to God. How much better Better is that, right? I know the forgiveness of God is the most wonderful thing in this life. It is the most glorious thing because I stumble all the time. But you know what? I know why I stumble. I stumble because I drift away. I drift away. And I entertain things that have been dead a long time. You know, Things that cause me great harm in my life and hurt people that are near and dear to me and you know what time passes and all of a sudden that old man begins to rise up you know it's a bit like the smoking thing for me you know I had a lot of bad habits a lot of bad habits but you know most of them no problem at all but there is one that keeps on getting me every now and then I've never given into it you know but i walk past someone smoking right And there is something in my brain that says, do you remember that? Remember how good that was? It wasn't good. I stop and I go, yeah, no, 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 no. I remember how I stunk. (laughs) I smell that on other people now. And so look, I'm not condemning anyone that might be smoking. Please, please, I'm talking about me here, right? But sin is like that, right? Every now and then, time may pass and that old man just creeps in. He says, hey, remember that? Remember the fun we had? Remember how good it was? And it, it perverts the reality of what life was, you know. It really does. And so I've got to count when those things rise up. And you've got to do the same. Rise up and count them as dead. So much better than giving into it and then running back to the throne of grace and say, oh, Lord, forgive me. And he will forgive me. And as wonderful as it is, how much better is it to go to bed at the end of the night not just knowing that, yes, I've been forgiven, but how much better is it going to bed at the end of the night knowing that you have been victorious and that thing is still dead in the ground. And I'll promise you, if you put it and you leave it in the ground and you keep it in the ground, it's like the old horror stories. Every time the hand comes through the grave, right? Just stomp it. And make it stay there. It'll get easier. And it'll get harder for that... <laughs> so, so... you so... Know, God is so good, isn't he? Hey, look, the choice is ours. Let me just read these last two verses. And you can... I, I, I encourage you to meditate upon these last two verses. Therefore, verse 12, Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, "...that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments..." You know that what instruments is? It's weapons. Think about it. Same word, weapons. You sh- so let's read it that way, shall we? "...therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members..." That's who you are, your hands, your feet, your... "...do not present your members as weapons of unrighteousness to sin..." It's so destructive, isn't it? But, hang on. But present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. Choice is ours, yes. Yield your bodies. This is what I want you to meditate upon this week. Do I often give you homework? No. But here's your homework. Yield your bodies. What are we talking about? It's simple. This thing. James talks about it a lot, doesn't he? Your tongue, your eyes, where do you let them go? Your hands, what do you allow them to handle? Your feet, where do you let them take you? Yield them, those things, to God as weapons of righteousness. For the kingdom's sake. Remember this, you were there at Calvary. You were there. In the heart of God, you were there. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, God saw you as being forgiven, as being brought back into fellowship with him. You were there. And you were there three days later on resurrection morning when Christ rose from the dead. You were there. And He is with you now and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Isn't that a glorious thing? Let's live under him, amen? All right, we're going to gather around the communion table and I can do this no better this morning than simply bring our minds back. So if you will with me, as the emblems come your way, be reminded... Jesus had spent the night with his disciples. <clears throat> they had discussed many things. He was telling them that he was leaving. They were confused. They didn't understand. But his promise came to them that he wouldn't abandon them. They wouldn't be as orphans. But he would send another. Another comforter that would be not only with them, but in them. Of course, he was talking about the Holy Spirit. They sat down and they had a meal that night. We know it as the Last Supper. It's where the, this celebration that we are doing now, this remembrance that we're doing now, was instituted. Where Jesus broke from the custom of the, of the ancient traditions of Passover, where they were looking back to what God had done in the past to the nation Israel, to remind them and to remind you and I that what God had done in the past for the nation of Israel and delivering them out of bondage was only a spiritual analogy of what Jesus was going to do for you. He became... He became our deliverer. He became the Lamb of God who would shed his blood for you and I. And and this wonderful institution was brought into being, where we are told, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that every time we do this, we should do this in remembrance of him. Would you remember right now? Would you take your hearts back? Would you take your minds back? Would you walk with him through those dusty, dusty, moonlit streets of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago as they made their way out from the upper room, out of the, out of the ancient city, through that eastern gate, down into the valley of Kidron, stopping for a moment as Jesus begins to pray and he prays that high priestly prayer. What a glorious prayer it is in John chapter 17. And I encourage you to spend time meditating there. And from there they cross over the Kidron into the base of the Mount of Olives. There they, they sit down. Most of the disciples sit and they, and they rest. But Jesus, going deeper into the garden, takes Peter, James and John with him. And there Jesus begins, begins to prepare himself for rest, the trial... The crucifixion, his death, but more importantly, begins to prepare himself to become our sin-bearer. The one who would take our sin upon him. And he makes that incredible cry, doesn't he? Father, if there's any way that this cup... The vile, the filth of all of humanity's betrayal against God and against all innocence was to be poured upon his perfect holy soul. He who never knew sin was going to become sin for us, that you and I might become the righteousness of him in Christ Jesus. What an incredible thought that is. And that night the battle raged. That night, the battle raged, but the Son of God was victorious. He rises from that battle. He says, Father, not my will be done, but yours. And he set his eyes like steel to the cross. They came, they arrested him, they took him, they abused him, they beaten him. He became so, so beaten and so abused that he was not recognizable even as a man, as I would tell us in those prophetic verses. He would be held before the religion of the day. The religion of the day would cry out, crucify him. He'd be taken from that place. He'd be nailed to the cross. He'd be lifted up. And the very first words that he will utter from the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I have said to you repeatedly this morning, you were there. Yeah, you were there. Yes, you were there. And your sin was being nailed to that cross. But that sin is the very thing that nailed him to the cross. So we were there as the offenders. But also we are there as the ones that are being liberated and set free. Have you stopped and thought about that? What an amazing thing it is. What an incredible truth it is. For six hours he hung upon that cross. For three hours in the brightness of the day, and at midday we're told it went dark, there was darkness fell upon the land, and it was as if God was not willing to allow mankind to look upon the Spirit. It was so horrendous. And the struggle ensued, but the victory was won, as I've said before today. He cried out to Telestai, it is finished. And in that moment, the ground shook as he breathed his last. He commits his spirit to the Father. He leaves. The ground shakes. And in the temple, that temple, not far from where Jesus was hanging, we are told that the veil was rent from top to bottom. Well, we need to understand what was going on when that happened. When that veil was rent, the priests were there, and they were offering sacrifice for sin in that temple. But it doesn't have to be happening anymore, does it? Because the sacrifice has been made. It was ranked from top to bottom. God was signifying that the way has been made open for mankind to once again come into fellowship with the living God. That's you and I. Because of what he has done. Because of what he has done. And the disciples fled in fear. And they hid And on the morning of his resurrection, the women made their way to the tomb, going to do something that they knew they couldn't do. They were going to finish preparing the body, the dead body of their, who they thought was the Lord. They were troubled. They didn't know as confidently as they knew. They didn't understand anything that happened. But now as they made their way there, remember the, remember the women? They're going to do this job, but they're broken in their hearts because they know they can't do it because they can't get into the tomb. Because the tomb is sealed. But as they arrive, the tomb is not sealed, is it? As they arrive, they're conf- they confronted by an angelic being who says, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? He is risen. Go and tell the disciples. And so I just want you to see that mournful profession making it to the tomb suddenly becomes this victorious flight and I often pictured I see the women early in the morning very mournful very low very drab very dark just making their way to the tomb but when they're leaving now they're leaving they're running they're rejoicing their garments are flowing the world has changed forever and somewhere in that flight they are stopped by Jesus who ministers to them, and they go and tell the disciples who refuse to believe. Multiple trips, I believe, to the tomb that day, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And one by one, one experience after another, eventually they all believed. You know what? Those experiences have been happening ever since then by one, day after day, one after another people have come and been confronted by the reality of Christ and the incredible victory and freedom that he has brought to, your, to people's lives and they believed and that is each and every one of you, you have believed, you've been set free, amen, amen. let's take these elements together as a family, Father we thank you we thank you Lord for what you have done for us, for setting us free from the